up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Welcome back to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoom land with Sid Gupta, co-founder of Nesh, product designer and builder, and data nerd. Sid, I have to ask, is data nerd self-proclaimed or did someone tell you that you were a data nerd? I could just call myself that. Data told me that. (laughs) (laughs) The data told me that. I like that. I like that. Well, man, welcome to the show. The last time we saw each other was we were just talking about was that Digital Wildcatters event here in Houston known as Fuse. But before that, I think it was February of 2020 when I had you on my last podcast, Oil and Gas on Shore, you know, and we talked about Nash and all the fascinating things that you were working on. I think it was somewhat in startup phase or you guys had recently kind of launched. But then since then, you know, we've had a global pandemic, an energy crisis, you know, you're in the technology space, which right now, you know, technology's kind of got an interesting challenge that it's facing along with markets in general. But I have to ask the first change. I noticed on your LinkedIn, you have New York. Did you move to New York at some point here? I did. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, I spent half my time in Houston and half my time in New York now. Wow. Okay, well, what's the story behind New York? It was sort of more of a personal move. So my wife, she got a new job, which was based in New York City. We both wanted to kind of always live there at some point. So decided to move up, still have our place in Houston. So kind of split our time between a lot of our customers are in Texas. So I keep coming back. Some of our team members are here too. But New York is awesome. So loving it so far. That is badass. What part of New York? We're in Jersey City. So technically not in Manhattan, but like a 15 minute train right away. No way. Okay. So I've only been to New York once, but my experience there was awesome. I love the city, right? And I feel like New York, like any city within the world that has something, I feel that New York has it as well. There's nothing there that no one else has that they don't, relatively speaking, of course, depending on you know beaches and all this and that. But even New York has some ocean. But I mean, man, what's your favorite part about living in New York? I guess not having to drive. That's the best part, I think. Like, in, I, we do miss our cars sometimes, but we kept our car here in Houston and then just public transport there. This is the freedom of it. It's pretty amazing. Well, when I was there, you know, of course, typical tourists, right? We stay in the main part downtown. Why am I forgetting? We're drawing a blank. Help me out with the big, all the lights and all the movies are filmed there. What's in Manhattan? What's the main? Oh, like Wall Street? Town, not Town Square. Oh, Times Square. Times Square. Yeah, I totally drew a blank. But yeah, we stayed in Times Square. So, of course, everything was just like, prices were through the roof. But to be able to experience Times Square, we went there right after Thanksgiving. So all the lights and just the magic of Christmas. And we saw Seal performing at the Lego Center and like all these random things, man. That <laughs> And my wife and I, we like shopping. And so, you know, of course, that's a big part of it. And it was just a very magical experience and just the energy that it had. And then we took those little red buses for tourists to go around. So we got to see Brooklyn and we got to see this and that. And if given the opportunity, assuming we're in the financial position to do so, I would love to have a place in New York just to go for whether it be weekends or even like during the holiday seasons. And in the summertime, it's beautiful from what I understand. But anyway, no, that's really neat, man. And congrats to your wife. Hopefully uh, it was a good opportunity. I'm sure it was or you wouldn't have moved. But yeah, thank you. It's really exciting. I mean, we love living there. We miss Texas, but we always have a home here. So I keep coming back. Yeah. It's our first winter there. So we'll see how we come out of the other end. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. You may end up requesting to come back, but I think you'll manage. Before we keep going, I do want to remind the listeners that I'm currently opening up sponsorship opportunities. So if any energy-focused companies are looking to increase brand marketing, visibility, and messaging, please reach out to me. I'd love to chat about an opportunity with you. And so for the audience, so normally I like to kick off and say, oh, where are you from? And how'd you get into this and that? But I mean, we kind of already did that. So for the listeners, if you want to get to know a little more of Sid's background and energy and just his journey and entrepreneurship, I encourage you to go back to episode 56 of Oil and Gas Upstream to get to know Sid and his journey. But I'm going to kick things off, Sid, to just kind of open up the space a bit. And I'm curious for you, do you have any core beliefs around industrial technology that you've changed your mind on over the last few years, or it could just be technology in general. We've gone through a lot of changes. I'm sure you've had to pivot a few times since we've spoke last, but have you had to kind of recalibrate and reposition yourself on the lens that you look through regarding technology? Yeah. I mean, when I think about it, it's like technology enables like people's behavior and what they do, right? And one of the key shifts that we have seen is how people work in this kind of post-pandemic world that we're living in, or so many shifts have happened, like two main things that we have seen is, one, this whole great resignation and great reshuffle that has affected people who kind of are knowledge workers, essentially folks who look at data, analyze data, interpret data, and make decisions off of that data. A lot of movement there. Second thing that we have seen is the whole working from home and the hybrid working environment that we're living in. So people are communicating very differently with each other. We are kind of sending a lot more emails back and forth with each other, sending a lot of chat messages with each other. So these two behavior changes, and there's no water cooler that doesn't really exist anymore. We aren't kind of sharing a common space to talk to each other. I know different companies work in different ways now, but that's the general trend. So those two things, when we look at it, and because Nesh plays in the space of like knowledge management, knowledge retention, we have seen a lot in how the technology needs to adapt to this new working culture and how people work. Interesting. You mentioned that, and I would say from your observation and experience, because in my bubble, which in I work, you know, we're mainly back at the office. And so those opportunities to be, whether it be in the kitchen or the, as you say, the water cooler talk, we're starting to see that a little more. But the beautiful thing about it is you're not required or looked down upon if you say, hey, I'm going to need to work from home today. I think what we've done well is we've done, and I say we, I'm speaking in super generalities here, but have done a good job of somewhat being able to quantify the performance output for remote environments. Now, I wouldn't say it's perfect. Some companies probably better than others, but for you and Nesh, I mean, was that something that you found as an opportunity or more of a hurdle? And can you describe kind of those two to either or? Yeah, for us, like you're asking for us or for our customers or... For you guys as a company. Yeah, I mean, for us, we never, for before the pandemic, we never considered hiring people outside of Houston, right? We were always thinking like, we have to find the greatest talent in the 50 mile radius around here, which was like a very myopic way of looking at hiring. And then when remote working happened, I mean, it kind of opened up the whole world for us. I mean, our team is much bigger than the last time we talked, but then also like 80% of our team is outside of Houston, outside of Texas even. We just have a lot more like high quality talent, they just happen to be in different places and we were able to tap into it, which is not unique to any of us. I think every company kind of went through that shift, but it opened up our eyes in how we hire and how we work and still trying to figure out as a startup, how do you kind of build team culture and all of that when everybody's remote? Well, and that's one thing that I'm big on, and I would say a lot of people are, but I really 
try to look a little bit, dive deeper into sort of work culture and what it takes to build culture and people. You know, something that I've always said is it's hard to build culture and increase density of relationships when you're always virtual. Do you have any tips or advice for say like a smaller companies that do, whether it be outsource or are very much spread out geographically that are really having to use technology and virtual meetings and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think technology does enable a lot of those things to kind of happen. There's a technology element to it. It makes sure that there's opportunities for people to kind of have conversations like over Slack or over Teams or something like that. Like having chatbots in your Slack that can kind of inject humor into day-to-day life saying, hey, what was the last thing you ate? Or show me the last photo you took on your phone and things like that. I mean, there's like conversations that you can create. So there's a technology element to it that can help automate some of these things. There are other parts too. It's like, and most of it needs to kind of come from the top in some sense in small companies is to make sure that like people know that they are safe, that they're taken care of in your organization. And then they can kind of like share their thoughts openly with each other and then creating opportunities to kind of talk about it to have more one-on-ones and encourage other people to kind of have those one-on-ones with each other. And then create opportunities to talk about things outside of work too. So we try and do some of those. And again, I'm pretty sure we're not perfect. There's a lot of things that we can improve, but having opportunities to for people to kind of do some sort of online gaming sometimes once a week or, oh cool, you know, like meet for a happy hour, virtual coffee or something like that. And having no agenda during these calls. These are a few things that I haven't heard of and which I think are great. And so you mentioned gaming, like you know, getting together. And game. Are you a gamer? I do. I mean, not too much, but whatever time I do have, I'm a console gamer, but yeah. Okay. So what's Sid's go-to game? If you got an hour and you want to bring the team together, I mean, what are you guys playing? Oh, when we play as a team, we generally try to play something that is not like something too complex. We'll play like code words. Like we have a couple of other like Pictionary and things like that, which is like not too intense. You're still talking. You're still laughing. You're still cracking jokes, that sort of a thing. If I'm playing on my own, I'll play something a little bit more serious. Okay. So if you're in a dark room and you've got an hour to unplug and then replug into the gaming world, what's Sid's go-to game? I mean, I play a lot of like Rainbow Six and ah, okay, Quantum Break. And I mean, I'd like a first person sort of a game games. Those are good ones. Yeah, man, that's great. Do you have kids? I do not know. Okay. I was a big Madden guy. I'm into sports uh, and yeah. grew up playing some Halo, but I always, you know, just love Madden and NBA 2K and stuff. And, you know, before I had kids, I had that those small breaks of time where I could just like zone out and game. And now that I have kids, I think the last game I played was something on my son's tablet. And it was like dinosaurs launching rockets into something. And it's, you know, not something I would have picked right away, but I encourage you. And the reason I'm kind of joking, making light, but focusing on this is like, I encourage you, man. Like, I don't know what your family plans are or whatever, but to really embrace those times that you do get by yourself to unplug and do those kind of things. And, you know, when we were at Fuse, we had uh, you on as, as a panelist to talk about what people don't tell you about the startup world or what it, I guess the truth behind startups or something to that, you know, effect, but you mentioned mental health, which, you know, that could be a whole nother episode in itself. But again, just going back to that is it's like, it's so easy now to be plugged in 24 seven, just because of technology and, you know, the globalization of business and industry and everything else. It's like, you could literally spend 24 hours a day working if you wanted to, like, there's no one at some point, someone in the world is like, they're on the clock. And so hopefully you do get a little Sid time to game and then just enjoy the things that you probably did growing up. And now you're probably finding less and less time to do it. But no, that's cool. Are you last question on the gaming thing, but I'm curious, 
Are you Xbox or PlayStation? Xbox. My man, virtual yeah. pound. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's cool. So I want to get a little bit into the challenges that exist within technology. You mentioned a couple of them before we got started, but I think it's important to discuss. So the question being, I mean, what do you think is the biggest challenge that you feel exists in the technology landscape and more so around because technology is such a broad term, right? But like more so some of the stuff that you're involved with. What Nesh does, we are like a knowledge management platform that captures expertise from experts and tries to create a virtual avatar. You can think of it as like a digital twin of an expert that people can go to when the real experts are unavailable, right? So that's what we do. Now, for us to do that, some of the things that need to happen. One is being able to kind of understand how people speak, how they write, and kind of making sense of it. So we use a lot of natural language processing. So that's one element of technology. The second is, how do you get people to share knowledge? A lot of times we have seen that knowledge is used as a currency. That is your value. So why would you want to share it with somebody else? So it's called knowledge hoarding. So how do you kind of get past knowledge hoarding to get people to share information? So that's another element of technology. Can technology solve that? Those are two of the biggest challenges that we have seen is being able to understand human language and make sense of it. And NLP is such a cutting edge area in machine learning right now. So a lot of our team members, I'm not an expert in NLP, but a lot of our team members are. So they spend a lot of time in doing R&D to understand like large language models and how that can help us parse human thoughts and human speech. The second element is actually more tricky because that involves changing somebody's behaviors. Like how do you get somebody to share knowledge which they don't intend to otherwise, or there's no incentive for them to do it? So that's another element we've been, and we are still experimenting to see how we can do that. But there's certain things that we have tried, sort of like trying to gamify that process. And again, kind of going back to the gaming thing, right? If you can gamify that process to get people to share knowledge, and then instead of asking them to share a whole lot of things, ask them to share something very specific and very small, which is easier done. So those are some of the things that we're experimenting with. And that answers your question, Justin, but those were the I mean, I don't know if it's like a technology answer, but those are two of the biggest kind of challenges that we are currently working through. No, and you did answer my question. And I think, like I was saying before, I was with one of my customers yesterday and one of the vice presidents was talking about, because we were talking about there's a certain technology company within oil and gas that does a fairly decent job, but he was voicing, I guess, some of his concerns about like their limitations based off, they only have access to what they have access to. And there is little data sharing. And he was saying, oh, if they could plug into so-and-so's data, it would make their outputs and their deliverables a lot more fine-tuned, or I could actually make better business decisions, but I feel like I could use them. But then I also need this company. And I also need this company because I need them to get this feed into this. And I need this to feed into this. But because everyone's, like you said, like hoarding their knowledge or their data, it sort of inhibits the growth rate of which you can adopt technology and then utilize it to benefit whatever companies it is. But why do you think people are so, like, do you think it comes from leadership and perhaps people think they get a competitive advantage by not sharing things that they know or knowledge or data, or does it come from like a level of insecurity where it's like, people know what I know, then I'm not as valuable. Like, do you think it's a characteristic issue or do you think it's more of like a business competitive advantage issue or I mean, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, the situation that you described with your customer that you were speaking with was more of like organizations sharing knowledge across each other, which is a lot harder to do than even sharing information within a company. We try not to solve that problem because that's like a lot harder to kind of get companies to share information with each other. That's somebody else's battle to fight. But for us, we work within an organization and even within a company, we have seen like one person might not want to share knowledge with another person. Ah, okay. That's like, okay, well, I know this stuff and I want to be the go-to person for any of these questions, right? If I just disseminate that information with everybody else, then my value diminishes. We have seen some personas like that. We've also seen people who are on the other end, like they document like crazy. They would write a lot of things to make sure that whenever they go on vacation or they go on some extended leave or they retire or resign, then everybody else has access to that knowledge. So they are documenting every day. So we have seen both of those extremes it's kind of hard to say what drives them. I'm guessing it's just like personal motivation of like how they perceive value of them. Some people don't want to be pinged again and again about the same thing. So they'll just document and point people to, hey, go read this stuff. I've already written it. And some people just love that interaction. That's what gives them satisfaction. No, I think you're touching on a lot of good points there. And I think, again, through my experience and observation, the ones who have been very much into hoarding or I guess hesitant to share knowledge. And again, this is just my observation. Typically those folks have a high level of insecurity and who have a tough time. I, that aligns with they don't like training people to take their roles. They really want to stay in their role and they don't want anyone taking their role because for whatever reason. But then the ones who are very much willing to share the wisdom and the knowledge that they know, those are the ones that are eager to move up and to say, hey, I realize that in order for me to advance, I need to train someone highly skilled to take my role so then I can take somebody else's role. I think a lot of it comes down to insecurities. And that's, again, totally my observation. You play in this world day in and day out. But I think it comes down to, again, like self-awareness and, and understanding kind of where you sit within your own level of confidence. But again, could be totally a bunch of other things. But you mentioned earlier about the ability to quantify value for knowledge, which is an interesting topic. I mean, I don't know if there's papers on that, but that's something that's not really talked about. I'm sure people go into that pretty deeply in maybe the academic world, but can you speak on what your thoughts are around that? Yeah. I mean, quantifying knowledge loss or quantifying knowledge retention or just overall knowledge management is a tricky thing to do because obviously the first thing that comes to mind for everybody is like, okay, if I can get answer to a question whenever I need it, the first thing that it saves me is time. That's the most obvious go-to thing, that it saves me time and I can do something else with my time. So that's the first kind of value proposition. It's like, it'll save you time. But again, time doesn't necessarily translate into money right away. So how do you kind of quantify it in a better way? So that's where we have to spend a lot of time with our customers to understand like how they perceive the value for a specific knowledge management implementation. And we have seen a lot of different value vectors come out of it. I mean, things like if an ex-employee leaves the company, oftentimes they come back as a consultant. Mm -hmm. And they often come back as a consultant at a much higher rate than what they were employed at. So if you can capture the knowledge very well, then maybe that consulting cost can go down and you can only hire them for very critical stuff, but not for an extended period of time. So that consulting cost can go down. So that's one value vector. Another one could be you can onboard a new person coming onto the team much more quicker. So instead of them having to shadow somebody all the time, they can onboard themselves on their own terms and their own time, and they can get on-ramped maybe in like two months instead of six months. So their productivity goes up really fast. 
Then another one that we have seen is that this was really interesting for us when we first found out that one of our customers saw that their team members who had like three to five years of experience were actually almost operating and behaving like they had six to 10 years of experience because they had all this knowledge available to them whenever they needed it, they could actually use it and perform better at their jobs. What that means is you're hiring somebody at almost like a lower grade and they're performing at a much higher grade. That quantifies into a lot of value. Like customer satisfaction goes up, product revenue goes up, your customer support team's efficiency goes up. There's a lot of different ways to quantify it, but I mean, it really depends on where you're applying the knowledge management workflow to, which part of your organization you're applying it to. Is it across the board? Is it for your customer service team? Is it for your technical services team? So I think those are some of the things that we need to think about. So speak a little bit on sort of a scope at which Nesh does. So let's just hypothetically speak at companies listening to this and saying, wow, you know, this is all really interesting stuff. So where does Nesh plug into, like, what's the value proposition for Nesh coming into a company and helping with a lot of these challenges or issues? Or what exactly is it that you do to help? So what Nesh does is it captures expertise within an organization and creates virtual experts for somebody to go ask questions to when real experts aren't available. That's the overall kind of idea behind Nesh. Now, how do you apply that? Most of the customers that we work with apply Nesh to something called technical services. So technical services is a broad term. And what that means is wherever your organization interacts with your customers in a technical way. That's like, I guess, the easiest way to kind of explain technical services. So this could be for support, that if your customers have a technical question, they come to you with that question. How do you answer that? That's one thing is the technical support. Another area, for example, is services. So you provide some sort of a service and you're looking to see how you can find more opportunities to improve that service or upsell that service. So that's another place you're interacting with the client and trying to discern that gap. Then another area could be quality assurance. So your company makes a product and that product is used by the customer. The customer sees some deficiencies and they want to troubleshoot that or you as a company wants to improve the quality of the product. So that's the quality assurance team is pretty close to the client. So that's another place to apply it to. So onboarding of a new person who is coming on your team, those are that's another area. So there's four or five different places. But if you're kind of thinking about where the most impact for a software like Nesh can be is to think about where does your organization comes closest to the client? And if you can unlock all the knowledge that your customer needs so they can get answers to their questions quickly as possible, that's the most impact that you can create. So if a company hires Nash, is it then a, a separate platform that plugs into some of their, I guess, databases or how do their the logistics work with that? Yeah. Well, so the way Nash trains itself and creates this virtual expert, it goes through three steps. The first step is to read all the content that an expert has already written. So these could be like experts have written a report or they have created a PowerPoint in the past or they have written a memo. So these are usually in like PDFs, PowerPoints, Word documents and things like that. And so Nesh will read through all of this. There could be millions and millions of these documents and the Nesh will kind of read all of this and try and synthesize how these experts think, what they say, or how they make decisions and so on. That's the first step is reading anything that has been formally documented. The second step is looking at things that are being talked about within the company, but hasn't been formally documented yet. 
So it could be like emails that are going back and forth between you and me or chat messages that we are sending to each other over Teams or Slack. So you can bring Nesh into those conversations and she'll learn from all of these informal talk and chatter that is happening. And then the third step is trying to understand what is in people's heads that hasn't been documented or talked about at all. So the way we do that is by asking those users or those experts very small but very specific questions. And when they answer those questions, a small part of the knowledge they contribute to Nash and Nash learns from that. So these three steps kind of keep repeating itself again and again and again. And that's how kind of Nash builds up the knowledge about like how these experts are kind of thinking and behaving. Wow, that's fascinating. That's quite a bit different from what I remember. That is a fascinating sort of journey that you guys have gone on and are embarking on. I'm curious on the document side, because this is, you know, just thinking within the company that I work for, to me, it makes a lot of sense because for us, we have a lot of technical documents, a lot of white papers, a lot of product data sheets, a lot of this, that, and the other. And a lot of times, yeah, if you're someone who hasn't been part of the company for very long, it's like, A, where do you find these documents? B, who's the right person to ask? They're going to get some answers based off of some of the stuff that we've written. So that can take a lot of time. But I mean, to me, that solves a pretty unique problem that I think a lot of companies face. But what I'm curious about is when Nish, you know, say takes a thousand documents or whatever and, and synthesizes it and who validates to make sure that there's like at least a decent level of accuracy that the information is correct. And I mean, obviously it's correct information, but the way it organizes it may not be accurate, if you know what I mean, or maybe it is, but I'm curious on that front. The user ultimately does because we as an external customer or external vendor have no clue what is relevant. To right. The domain expertise, domain expertise is not quite there, but yeah. Correct. Yeah. So the way we do that is we rely on the users to validate it. So Nash has sort of like a Reddit-like capability built into it. There are moderators and people can essentially upvote and downvote things as they come in to make sure that only the relevant and the high value stuff surfaces itself at the top and everything else gets pushed down. So we crowdsource that wisdom from the company to make sure that all the knowledge that has been organized for them and is being found for them is actually correct. Wow, that's really fascinating. What would you say right now is your biggest limiter for growth? Is this when you're talking to potential customers, is this something that, I mean, you just can't keep up with? Or what are some of the common questions and how do you respond to these questions? I think the biggest hurdle is what you asked earlier about like quantifying the value for this, because people see that this is a big problem to solve. If I solve this problem, how do I put a dollar amount on it? And then how do I stack it versus the other problems that I'm trying to solve in the company? That's the biggest thing is like, we need to make sure that we can communicate very effectively the ROI for something like this. Yeah. So do you guys capture case studies and do you get testimonials or ways to be able to quantify to where if you're giving a pitch, you can say, well, according to the data, because I'm a data nerd, of course, here's what the data is telling us. You know what I mean? Like, how do you capture that? And are companies willing to take, it's one thing to be successful, but then it takes even more resources to capture the success, organize it, and then put it in a unique sort of, whether it be marketing material, or it's always about telling the story because I'm in sales and, you know, I, play hand in hand with our marketing team. And when I'm going to sell something, I need to tell a story on A, like how it's going to solve the problem you're facing. Oh, where's the ROI? Well, if I can capture a circumstance that it helped the company save X amount of dollars, like it, dollars are the easiest thing because it's everyone understands dollars, right? And so 
I don't know if I was specifically asking a question, but to the point is like, how do you actually capture these success stories? And is it more of an objective? Here's what they did and here's how it helped. Or are you able to tie back dollars or is it kind of case specific? That's a good question because like case studies ultimately, I mean, even if you tell what the success story of another customer has been like, how did they get to a value? What that journey was like needs to be yeah. captured very well. So what we try and do is almost try to make it formulaic in a way that here's what this customer did. Here's the value that they received out of doing this. And how did they get those value? And here's a formula, how we calculated it and how we validated it. And we try to take that formula and almost put it into an Excel file for this new customer to say, okay, well, here's an Excel file. If you plug in numbers that are for your company, you'll get a representative value for your organization. So tell me how many employees do you have who have more than 25 years of experience? Tell me how many new people you're onboarding every year. What is your churn rate look like? How many people are retiring from your organization every year? How many people are kind of just separating for other reasons? So things like that, they fill in like a form and then it tries to give you an approximate value based on what we have seen from our other clients. Ah, interesting. I mean, you guys went the extra mile to build it because you give some inputs and hopefully, you know, they can quickly evaluate it and, and hopefully give them enough data to make a better decision or, oh, wow, this is something that could help instead of you just pitching it and, and it's like, yeah, this sounds great, but what's in it for me? Like, how can you validate what you're telling me is actually something that's happening or could happen? Yeah, I know that's really interesting. Kind of pivoting on, you know, I talked about storytelling and the marketing aspect. I mean, how important for you guys is marketing in terms of like, do you have sort of initiatives to tell the story to say people who haven't heard of you? Or is that like, how important is that part of it? And how important is the branding and all of that, is it more boutique to where like the customers you do have, you're more so focused on that? Or are you in like growth mode or how is some of that coming along? We used to do a lot of marketing in the past, like maybe about like before the pandemic, I would say like that's when we focused a lot on marketing to make sure that people knew about Nesh and what we we're up to. And then honestly, I mean, just through the pandemic and through the dynamics of how the market evolved and where we needed to focus, we decided not to spend too much dollars and time on marketing instead of trying to be very focused and have more outbound and business development going on versus like trying to create a lot of inbound interest, which has worked out fine. But I think we will want to start investing in marketing again. We have good product market fit now. We're able to see kind of where our customers are coming from, who are the users who are using it, what is the pain point they were solving. So we have good messaging. We just need to kind of nicely package it up together to send something out there. Makes sense. I would imagine maybe some of the questions or even for the folks listening is, and again, I know it's very company specific depending on headcount and all the rest of it, what kind of industry it is. But I mean, do you have an answer for if someone's like, hey, how long, like, let's say I'm a company of 100 people, we're relatively spread out. We've been in business for 15 years, whatever. I mean, I'm just throwing numbers out. How long before I actually see some benefit here? Like, do you need to be collecting data for 10 years or like, two months or, I mean, is, is there any way to kind of answer that question to, so that people can say, wow, if I invest X amount of money within a few months, I should be seeing something. Yeah. One thing we've seen is like, there has to be enough knowledge inside your organization that it is chaotic. That's when you actually start feeling the pain that you want to solve this thing. And in our experience, we've seen if you have more than 200 to 500 employees, 
that's when things start to become pretty chaotic. If you have less than 100, then you can kind of manage with like folder management and all of that. I mean, I think it'll still be fine. You can somehow get by. But once you cross that threshold of like 200 to 500 employees, there's enough knowledge floating around and enough people moving in and out of teams that you need to have some sort of a knowledge management practice in place. So that's the first thing. Now you have the pain. Now you start solving it. We've seen like in about three months of implementing a solution like ours, people start seeing qualitative benefits, not quantitative yet. They start seeing things like people's burnout reduce because they are not just always hair on fire running around trying to find things. It's easy for them to go look for a piece of info whenever they need it. They see like satisfaction of customers go up by a certain point. In about six months, they start to see more quantitative benefits. They start seeing some NPS scores change. They start to see customer satisfaction go up. They start to see customer service efficiency change, things like that. And in about a year, they start to see more kind of long-term consequences. They see product revenue go up. They start to see quality incidents come down. They start to see kind of regulatory impacts go down. So yeah, I would say like probably from somewhere between three months to a year, that's when you start realizing some early value and then about a year to realize some late effect. Makes sense. And you don't have to say the amounts, but do you ever find when you go in and pitch it, if and people say, yeah, this is interesting. I mean, have you figured out the right price point for something like this? Because I would imagine there's not too many people in the market that are doing this. Like, I don't know how many competitors you have, but has fine tuning the price point been difficult or is that not really an issue for you? Oh, no. I mean, pricing is one of the hardest things to nail down, right? I mean, you've, you've I'm sure you've seen that. It's been a journey for us too. It's like trying to experiment with different pricing models. And we feel good with where we are right now, but we are still kind of looking at optimizing that to make sure that the value that our customer gets is aligned with the pricing that they are paying for that. But yeah, I mean, we have experimented with some of that. I mean, we do compete with customer. We do compete with other vendors. Our solution is usually compared to enterprise search. It is also compared to other knowledge management tools. Our kind of core differentiator is that we focus on heavy industry, so we understand the domain very well, but we do have competition. So we have to make sure that we aren't being priced out or something like that. No, that's interesting. I'm always, always curious. Again, as a, someone in sales, I'm constantly getting beat down on pricing. So I, I'm always interested in to, to hear other people's experience on that, but we're coming up close to, I know you got a hard stop here and certainly want to respect your time. Kind of taking a step back, taking the business side out of it. I want to ask another question for you more on the personal side of things, but you've been running this company now for, I don't know, maybe what, four or five years or so. How long have you guys been in business now? Five years? Yeah, four years now. Four years. Okay. So, I mean, you've been blowing it going. Four years probably feels like two years underwater or treading water, but do you have any sort of daily habits or routines that help contribute to your success to keep you focused, to feel be recharged versus like, you know, you mentioned burnout and that's I think as a startup founder, I think that happens probably more so than we'd like to admit. But how have you managed stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm guilty of a lot of things that I'm sure other founders are for too. It's like being able to let go of responsibilities is really hard as a startup founder because when you're early on, you're doing every single thing in a company. And as you start hiring people, you just have to let go and know that everyone has a different way of functioning. They do different things in different ways. So like trusting that process and then making sure that whoever you hire actually has the full authority to do what they do. So this was something that took me a while to learn. And then also kind of comes with like, as you start hiring really good talent, you know that they will do a good job. And we have had hiring fails. So making sure that you know how to hire well, and when you do hire well, how to empower that person. 
I mean, the second thing is just like I'm a task oriented guy. So whenever I get up in the morning before I start working, I make sure that I have a list for the day that I want to accomplish my goals. Otherwise, it's just the day becomes very hazy and I just jump from meeting to meeting to meeting without having any specific things achieved. Gotcha. How do you prioritize that? Because I know a lot of people write a list, but then I've heard within the list, some people prioritize it like A, B, C, D, or they'll have three things that are like absolutely 100% critical and the rest are just, if I get to them, that's cool. Like, Do you have any way of structuring the list? Not too scientific. I mean, if it's an existing customer thing, that probably goes to the top. If it's something in the pipeline, then probably goes next. If it's a team member and I'm blocking somebody from doing something, then that probably comes next. So there's some sort of a mental model that I have. I don't think there's any, I don't think I apply too much science to it. Just kind of go down that list and whatever gets done, gets done next day. Otherwise that list kind of starts over again. Right. Which, I mean, if you're like me, same thing, I have a list and it's very dynamic because things come up and all of a sudden it's like, boom, this is priority. I always find it interesting sort of people's systems and processes they have within their ability to do work. And so, especially as founders, I mean, it's just diving into that for, is selfishly always interesting to hear guys like you. I used to I used to use the app, like a to-do app to do this first. And then I realized that there's no satisfaction in just clicking a box. So on my phone, I have, you know, notes. I have iPhone, I'm Apple guy, and I can do the checkbox, right? And so I was like, I'm going to create a virtual to-do list. And I'm an 80s baby, man. So it's like, you know, everything in school was still pencil, paper, pen. And when I have my pad here, when I have, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and I can just check it off or cross it out. It's just, there's that level of intrinsic satisfaction that I get. I'm like, yes, I'm accomplishing something. And then, but on the phone, it was just like, I'd click it and it would disappear. And I'm like, okay, I guess the next thing, (laughs) you know, it's like this weird thing, man. So I get it. No, I was just saying that's so weird. Like we had the same quirk. I I realized that just like that satisfaction of just checking it off. And Oh, I can't wait till my kids get into their careers and I'm still carrying around my little notepad with a pen. I'm a, I'm a pencil guy, man. I love having a pencil. Maybe it's the engineering behind me and engineering paper and whatever, because a lot of erasing happened, especially when I was in school. But uh, they're going to be like, dad, I can't believe you still use paper and pencil. What are you? But man, this has been good. Really appreciate this, Sid. And and you don't have to spell it out, but what links do you want me to put in the show notes in terms of getting in touch with you? So obviously website, you know, maybe LinkedIn. Do you have any other platforms that are for the listeners that they can click and look at? No, I think those two are good. I mean, LinkedIn for if you want to connect with me or connect with Nesh or NR website to get some more background information on it. Yeah, those two should be plenty. Perfect, man. Well, this has been great to catch up. And Sid, I I wish you nothing but the best up there in New York. And, you know, obviously you're traveling quite a bit, but safe travels, happy holidays. And, you know, I just hope that everyone lives a, a prosperous, healthy and happy 2023 for you and your family. And for the listeners out there, always remember, if you want to sponsor the show, please reach out. And until next time, remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.